everybody's Todd here. Hey, look at this is not your normal EMN podcast. I am going to share with you uh, a relaunch of the Disaster Politics podcast. And this is a space where Jeff Sledgemarch has been for a long time, and I have been honored to be asked to be part of this uh, program. This is a space where we're going to delve into the intersection of policy, legislation, and disaster management. It's going to be a thrilling journey as we explore how the world of politics influences our approach to handling and recovering from disasters. We've revamped that show to ensure that each episode is packed with rich content, intriguing discussions, and real-world applications. So whether you're a professional in the field, a policymaker, or someone who just is interested in the intricate dance between politics and disasters, well, we've got something for you. And here's the cool part. You can still catch all of our episodes on your favorite podcast players. So whether you usually get your podcast fixed, search for Disaster Politics, hit that subscribe button, and join us in exploring the fascinating world where policy and disaster preparedness intersect. I can't wait for you to all turn in. I'm really looking forward to this great partnership between Jeff and I. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the Disaster Politics Podcast. It's great to reconnect with everyone. It's been a couple of years. Uh, and you may notice I'm not alone this time. I'm joined by a new co-host, uh, Todd DeVoe. Todd, thanks so much for uh, joining up with the podcast here. Oh, I'm super excited about this. I mean, you know, I've loved this show that you've done for a long time and you and I uh, have uh, really developed a great dialogue with each other. And so I'm really excited to be part of Disaster Politics. Awesome. Yeah. And we've been talking about this for a while. And I know a lot of folks have been asking, when's the next episode coming out? And it's like, oh, when do I have time? <laughs> and we sort of stumbled into with the podcast kind of having like just such amazing conversations with amazing people. It really kind of carries itself. And so I know you and I have been talking for a while now about, OK, how do we relaunch this? And now, now here we are ready to put our heads down, roll up our sleeves, take this seriously, take it to the next level um, and just thrilled to uh, um, to. To, to partner up on this. Absolutely. You know, the thing that interests me about disaster politics, and it kind of goes back, I guess, because, you know, obviously people who don't know me, uh, let, let me introduce myself really quick. So um, I'm Todd DeVoe. I, I'm, I've been involved in emergency management and disaster response for, oh, I mean, if you count my first responder time going on about 30 something years, so it makes me old. Um, and, and then on the other side of it though, is I've always noticed like, Specifically after Katrina, I think, is when I first became aware of this. And I know it's been before that, but in, in my own personal awareness, is how disaster response and recovery uh, becomes political pretty quick. Yeah. And I had a conversation um, with Pete Gaynor and Craig Fugate um, in New York City a couple years ago um, on, on the stage of, of a conference that we were at. And I asked the question, how do you get politics out of emergency management and disaster response and their response is pretty um refreshing in a way and they said you don't and you can't and and, and so that you know kind of goes in the fact of what we're doing here today with disaster politics is it's impossible to take politics out of disasters and why do you think that is jeff yeah, I think that's a great question. And you know, I remember too actually during COVID I was invited to speak at a conference um it was a virtual conference because everything was back then. And I think the title was something like, how do we get the politics out of public health? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> the same answer, like you don't. Um, that's a short conference. Um, <laughs> there were also some controversies because it was it was um, it was around the time the lab leak theory was really um, getting a lot of attention. And, um, you know, these things matter. And because at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's a difference between politics and partisan politics, and sure. both are engaged, right? One of them is about defeating the other side and winning an election. Um, and that certainly, you know, gets very partisan, can get very ugly. That's where you have a lot of pundits doing things. Um, but that being said, there are influences for doing that that find their way into disaster management. But even when we set politics aside, there's still politics. Why do we focus on the things we do and the things that we don't? Why do we focus more on response than on preparedness? Because um, voters are more interested in that. 
they respond more to that. So that creates an incentive structure um, that our, our political organizations respond to. And maybe when we say politics, when we even get away from the individuals, how have we built institutions? Why have we built emergency management and put it under a public safety agency in one state, um, but then are having them involved in health, which is under another executive agency and another area. And so these structures that we've built to sort of handle the day-to-day -day problems then have to be reconciled with how those lines start to blur during a disaster. Um, and so I've always just found it to be really important and really refreshing. Um, just one other thing I'll mention is that, you know, a lot of times, you know, I find when disaster response fails, um, a part of it is that it fails to take into account how dynamic the politics can be. We want to push the politics out. We want to, you know, I work in academia. We want to blanket ourselves in the science and protect ourselves from the messiness of the outside world. Um, but that's where, but that's what's happening, right? I mean, we see it during COVID with fights between governors and mayors over the best way to approach things and scientists in the background saying, uh, Neither of those policies are so great on their, <laughs> their own. Um, and so they're all just important facets of how we live our lives. And they're all equally important um, that we understand how they function, how they influence, and ultimately um, how we can better integrate those variables into our planning and the way that we respond. You know, one of, one of the things that I think this is interesting and, and, and from my perspective of the years of taking a look at it as first doing it and then now as a as a public policy guy um is that i think we do i should say i think i know we do response well we do the the lights and sirens the 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 getting people helicopters off the roofs you know we for the most part i don't i, don't, I can't recall a time when we've done that portion of it poorly I'm thinking in my head right now. I just can't think of one, you know, outside of mechanical issues that occur, right? But where we, where I think we fail at, from public policy point of view is on the recovery side. And I think a lot of people, will, when they complain, like Katrina, for instance, I don't think it was the response that had the issue. I think it was, it was the recovery side that had the issue, um, you know, getting people whole again. And and yeah, yeah, there were some problems here and there as far as like sheltering and things like this, and we could put that, I guess, under response. Uh, but getting people rescued out of the water was not a problem. It was the after getting the people to safety was the problem. Do you agree or disagree with that? Um, I I guess half and half because I think that you know a lot of and this is another area that I've, I've been interested in. You've been in the mix of it a lot more too as a responder, so I'm curious your take as well is that you know we we have response and first response is very procedure driven right and right. those procedures tend to be executed uh very well um people are trained to do it we want them to execute it well um what becomes a challenge is when that procedure is not a fit for the mission mm. um and so you know the um we don't go in until the area is secured well that pretty much negates going in if we're looking at things like um uh, you, you know, people are going to be there for weeks on end before you can secure the area and assume everything's safe. Uh, we're not going to let, you know, so so do you have that adaptability? Do you have that flexibility um, to do things? And that's where we sort of see the frustration of politicians who are getting immediate signals from voters and things like that saying, go do something. Um, and then so they jump in and take over the operation and sort of shatter um, um, this sort of Jenga procedures that have been assembled over time. Um, you know, Katrina, I would give one. I think the Coast Guard worked very heroically, but I think that, you know, we saw some improvements in response that came from it by allowing greater flexibility, greater forward deployment, as well as, um, you know, things like the Cajun Navy, the integration right. of volunteers and responders that were largely kept at arm's length um, until you could have more government control over the area that's largely been shifted instead of saying, how do we keep volunteers away so they don't get in the way? And more of a how do we how do we divert that energy into something that complements what we do? You know, sending someone along with them, but also as kind of a force multiplier for doing this. And these have all been, I think, important advancements uh, over the years in terms of recognizing the variability um, and and providing flexibility in the way that we respond. But uh, but I, I'm curious your thoughts as well too in terms of <laughs> of that, especially as someone who's worked sort of on the front lines as a responder. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of different than most people because I have a, a, a 
bifurcated history in my life, right? So um, the idea of volunteers, and I don't think that emergency responders have a problem. And, and I say think because I haven't done the data. I haven't, these are all, you know, anecdotal evidence here. There's nothing that I can speak to scientifically about it. Um, it is, I don't think most responding agencies have a problem with, with organizations um, such as say like a team Rubicon or now the Cajun Navy or the American Red Cross um, organizations, or you know, Salvation Army like that, that have established guidelines and rules and regulations and they have people under control. Those volunteer organizations work well within the structure. The other side of it is, is the spontaneous volunteer who just shows up and he's like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a plumber and I know how to do this. Well, you know, how do I know you're a plumber? Do you know, like, how do I know you have these skills? Am I going to put you in harm's way? Are you going to do something that's going to make the situation worse? And those are the volunteers that you see are put on the, on the back burner of send over there. We'll get to you when we get to you. We might, might not be able to use you. So I, I, I think that with the volunteer side of it, and we saw that happen interestingly enough uh, during hurricane Harvey, when they put out the call for anybody who has a boat come and help. And you had people coming from long distances with boats just to put boats in the water and organizations like team Rubicon, like the Cajun Navy, um, you, you know, and I guess Cajun Navy, by the way, it's for people who don't know, there's, there's actually various different Cajun navies now, uh, but there isn't actually official Cajun Navy organization. Um, so those organizations that came in uh, well-established, well, well-defined missions, um, you know, structure that kept kept people safe did a great job. Now there were some accidents that occurred from the random boat people. Huh, not boat people. That's probably the wrong word to use. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I, I I say that, and the reason why I hesitate is I actually work with with the Vietnamese community here in Orange, South Orange County, and um, uh, they uh, uh, you know they're they're the, they're the real boat people. Um, so people are using boats, right? Um, you know, that, that part of it is, is how do we, what's the liability associated with it? You know, do we put people in harm's way? Uh, do they have the training? Are they going to get in, in, involved in or make rescues? You know, our professional rescue is going to have to go rescue them. You know, all these other issues that are associated with it. So it, it is a dynamic moving position piece. And, and I think, you know, when we take a look at the, again, the response of the professional rescuers. Um, there are times when we tell people, right, especially in the fire area, we're doing an evacuation in this area, right? Evacuate X. Um, we're not going to put people in harm's way to come rescue you after this evacuation has come. And we tell them that because we, why we can't, the general rule is don't trade a life for a life. Right? I don't want to put Jeff in harm's way to go save somebody who we already told before to evacuate. And the same thing with hurricanes. We're saying evacuate, get away out of the harm's way, and then if you're stuck in there, we're going to get to you when the storm is over. You know, when, when it's safe to put people in that area. Because, again, we're not trading lives for life. And as a, as a first responder, it's hard to watch this occur and watch people be in, uh, in jeopardy. And because this is what we're trained to do, in one aspect of it, but on the other side of it, as an administrator, you go, I can't put these guys in harm's way because we've told people to leave already. And I think that's where, where the disconnect is. And then you see um, politicians get involved uh, because they see their, their, their constituents uh, calling them on the phone or hearing it from them saying, Hey, why aren't you coming to rescue me? Mm, well, we've told you to leave. That's part of it. So anyway, that's my, my, my long take on, on a short question. So, so I guess kind of stepping back from all this too, I'm just sort of kind of reflecting on where we're at now, right? We have multiple disasters sort of going on. We have uh, hurricanes churning up in uh, the Atlantic basins and um, the disaster relief fund uh, through mm -hmm. FEMA is just about out of money. And we have the prospect of a government shutdown coming ahead um, and, and it, it, you know, we're seeing sort of this increase in disasters and for a variety of reasons. Um, and a colleague of, of mine, my co-author for, for my latest book, Catastrophic Incentives, Dr. Ellen Carlin and I, and um, have done a bit of a look at how, um, uh, along with some other colleagues, on how um, 
the uh, federal funding has increasingly relied on emergency supplemental funding um, and how sort of our, our um, and here we find ourselves again, sort of reliant on congressional action to have the tools uh, for FEMA to be able to respond. If I remember correctly, um, I believe that, you know, even within the disaster relief fund to sort of keep it solvent in the interim, there may be a need to pause some recovery work to be able to fund some of the ongoing response work, right? Yeah. Um, and so this puts us in a pretty, pretty perilous position where we have much broader sort of political considerations and brinksmanship um, kind of, um, threatening some of the some of the very systems or at least the funding for the systems um, that were required to continue with this long-term recovery as well as uh, some of these responses that we see in the here and now but also um, in the coming weeks uh, and months. Um, I'm curious just sort of your thoughts on this too. It feels like we're sort of getting to a breaking point of this reliance on emergency funding yeah. and the capacity of the current sort of structures and approaches to be able to manage multiple concurrent disasters. Is that just me as an academic and a naysayer and a doomsday <laughs> prophet? Um, what are you seeing on your side and with your conversations? Uh, well, as you know, Jeff, and maybe some of the audiences too, is, is I have moved over to the academic side of things, which is, uh, you know, as, as uh, Carol Seawick says, she calls us pracademics, right? We're the academics that have the practitioner uh, side of things. And so we, we, we look at things from a different lens. Um, I, I want to address a couple of things brought up by the, by your question. And one, let's, let's delve into Hawaii for, for a little bit, you know, and outside, you know, you could say that was a, some people are saying that's a failed response, but I mean, that so many issues associated with that. And I don't know enough about the response side to, to really get deep into that. So I just want to talk about the perception on things and, and where on the, that, which, where the politics really come into play. You, you know, they, people, the people I say the media were getting into the concept here of, Oh, we're FEMA's asking for more money, but yet they're putting their staffers up in these uh, multi-thousand dollar a day uh, hotels. And, and perception sometimes is reality, even though you and I, Jeff, know that FEMA was not paying the, the, the full boat um, rate uh, at these hotels and, and probably very, very, very under what, what the going rate is and probably somewhere in the tune of, you know, between $150, $200 a night, if that's if, if about what they're paying. Maybe a little bit more, but that's I doubt that because that's, that's what the typical rate is for, for – um, for government employees when it comes to these things. Um, but the perception is, is you hear FEMA coming into Hawaii where there's people that are still living in tents, staying at these, these super high-end hotels, which I, I understand the optics of that. Um, but there's also has to be a place for people to work. Right. But then you, then you have FEMA turn around and asking for more money. And I can see why there's, there's political pushback on, on that. So what do we do? So and the reason why I start with this is what do we do? What can we do uh, for, for this? So number one, as you started off the show today talking about politics and how, you know, the, the response money um, and, and, and the recovery money necessarily um, is really well accepted and funded by politicians um, because it, it's, there's a place for them to take a photograph with a big check, right? And going, oh, you know, I'm Congressperson X and I'm in my district and I'm bringing you, you know, multi-million dollars and they get the big fake check out and they take a picture with the, the police chief and the fire chief and the, you know, city, whatever, city council members and everybody's clapping. There's like, oh, this is awesome that there's bringing these millions of dollars in relief funds to my city. The, the, the paying for um, uh, preparedness funds it doesn't have that. There's no sexy associated with it. You know, it's, you don't have the fire chief and the police chief and everybody clapping for, for preparedness funds. And we know that if you do preparedness, depending on what you look at it, it's anywhere between like one to seven in some studies. And I saw one the other day where it was like one to 18. It was a UN uh, study that was talking about that uh, a disaster risk reduction of looking at one to 18, $1 spent on preparedness, preparation goes into $18 on the, on the recovery side. And, and, and so we could save money there. Um, but we don't put 
and I say we, the collective we, not just the political class, the the everybody, we it struggles to find people to get prepared. So Brock, Brock Long talked about the concept of creating a culture of preparedness. Um, DRR from the UN talks about the idea of creating a culture of preparedness. And, and then we have to really change people uh, to get that, to, to, to embrace that. And, you know, back to Hawaii, there's this one home that survived um, the fire where everything else around it burnt down. And it was almost by mistake. I was reading an article um, in the Washington Post about it where they had a water leak problem or a, a flooding problem. Um, and they had to redo, and they just bought this home. They redid it. They put a tin roof on it or a metal roof on it. Um, they redid the outside because they had some sort of flooding issue. Uh, to and, and so just by happenstance, they didn't have uh, growth of plants around the home. Uh, so they basically had a defendable space that they didn't, the, the owner of the home said we weren't thinking fire when they, when yeah. they did that. And, and, and it worked. And we see this in California, um, Malibu fire, for instance, the Woolsey fire, um, where homes that survived were defendable homes, the, the defensible space around it, the preparedness for homes that burnt down these multi-million dollar homes, uh, that had, you know, lush plant life all around it burnt down. You know, um, so it, it, we need to really be working with our communities at the practitioner level, working with businesses, working with community homeowner associations, working with these people to be able to say, look, at, fix your problem, you know, um, and, and, and I'll tell you, I'm going to give Southern California Edison some props. My property backs up on Edison property um, on the hillside, right? There's some high-tension power lines up there, and so you can't build up on that area. The last three days, they've been out there um, mowing and weed whacking and getting all that vegetation cut back. And this morning, they were, like, right on my fence line uh, mowing their – bringing their stuff down. So Edison learned. PG&E is learning that the, from the hard way of, of keeping defensible space around the areas. So my, the reason why I'm going on this little diatribe about this is there are ways for us to stop these, especially with fires, these drastic um, um, losses, devastation losses um, of homes. Now, people still got to evacuate, smoke issues, all this kind of stuff. But if, if you have defensible space, your, the homes won't burn down putting clay roof on your house instead of uh, um, instead of having or tin roof instead of having the um, um, asphalt shingles right simple things like that um, can can st or, or shake shingles for gosh sake you know that you see simple things like that make a difference and but go back to politics on this there's no funding for that you're now you're taking people who in some cases uh, can't afford uh, to even, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck. Um, you know, they're making a decision, be, be decision, a decision between, you know, paying one bill and keeping food on their family's plates. You know, can we expect them to go through and pay for, or you know, if they have the ability to, to put different roofs on their homes or to, uh, to make sure that they have defensible space and do this stuff. How do we help those communities, those families out, you know, and uh, so that's the balance that we have to have. And I think we could do that through grants. Um, I would like to see um, uh, block grants being given to communities uh, to be able to push things out like that. Uh, I know, Jeff, you and I spoke about this uh, a little while ago about the concept of using, um, you know, block grants. And, and they've been ex they, they've they've shown over the years to be efficient and it gets down to money to the local level to pay for things that they need to pay for at the local level. And uh, so I'd like to see more of that. I don't know if I answered the question or if I went on a diatribe. Yeah, uh, I'm sure a little bit of both. It's all good. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, no, and it, it kind of reminds me, and uh, if you hear in the background, thunder and lightning, it's uh, it's not a studio effect. There's just a thunderstorm passing over. But the, uh, um, you know, um, and I'm not a political scientist by training, but in some of the political science, it overlaps with the work that we do. A couple of things that sort of come to mind. One is voters reward elected officials for disaster response and recovery funding, not for preparedness funding, yeah. right? Um, and there have been a few analyses of these looking at the correlation of spending and, and a strong correlation of new votes for 
X amount of dollars being brought in, but no correlation with preparedness. Um, and so making that connection and making it, uh, you know, we, we talk about educating the, the policymakers, but it's also about educating the voters uh, in terms of asking questions like why, why do we need so much money? Why do we, uh, to begin with, why were we so vulnerable to begin with to help sort of prompt those proactive investment decisions? Um, another is with social capital. Um, and a colleague, uh, a lot of folks look into this, a friend and colleague, Daniel Aldrich, has obviously done a lot of writing on this. And, and he um, talks about in Japan, the, uh, as well as elsewhere, the after the 311 disasters, the earthquake, tsunami, and Fukushima meltdown. Um, communities with horizontal social capital, neighbors helping neighbors, and that being a great insulator for health and mental health issues. But then there's um, vertical capital. Um, and I remember talking to him, um, I think actually on this podcast, uh, interviewing him on his book, and he, he was talking about how, how he sort of underestimated how important that was, that that when you're a community and you're recovering, the um, the, the relationship you have with the policymakers and with the politicians and the power of your elected officials in the equivalent of Congress or, or, or for wherever you are has a lot to do with how resources get steered to your community or don't get steered. And so when we get into equity and we get into that, it's like the status quo of politics is get it out there as quickly as possible. I always give the example, look at the side of a mountain next time you uh, have the opportunity to look at one you know where the water's gonna run down if there's a rainstorm, right? It makes the creases, it makes the crevasses and, and ravines and, and, and it naturally flows down. Now, let's say you wanna get a lot of water on top of one of those ridges. You can't get it there naturally. You can't, you can dump all the water you want. It's gonna keep running below it. You have to dig trenches and it's a harder investment to get it up there. And I'll get sort of a specific example of that. This has come up a lot through a lot of analysis policy of redlining a century ago of determining where money flew, uh, flowed for home ownership and where it didn't and included uh, explicit measures to keep money away from majority minority communities, which led to lower property values, divestment and in infrastructure, all of the things you were just talking about, Todd, where you know it's, it's one thing to create a culture of preparedness, but it's another to actually look at what is that capacity for preparedness? Right. How is it, how are the legacies of policies that seem to have nothing to do with disaster management, very predictive of who's going to have the hardest time, who's going to be the most exposed um, if these investments aren't needed. Now, there's a flip side, if we could make the argument, which is that there's a lot more to gain from investments in historically disadvantaged communities. There's a lot more room to grow, and there's a lot of unrealized benefit from this sort of re restorative justice lens. Um, and so we can we can meet economic goals that tend to be more salient to politics, although not exclusively, um, while at the same time achieving social justice goals. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of ground to be grown, um, uh, ground to be grown. I'm not sure what that means, but I think you know what I mean, <laughs> as well as um, um, and um, but but you know again as emergency managers, it's it's not something that we're necessarily trained on when we're learning the instant command system and the Homeland Security Exercise and Evaluation Program. There's accommodations for senior officials, there's liaison officers, there's senior executive seminars, but how are you gonna deal with a governor who doesn't get along with the mayor? I'm based in New York, that's a common issue, right? We saw yeah. it during COVID, we saw it during um, really any disaster. You're gonna see a conflict between the governor and the mayor. <laughs> it's like part of the job description. Um, and how is that going to fold into the response? And and uh, what is it that they're looking for beyond um, the ICS forms that sort of run the procedures? But but what is the message for the politicians? And that's going to have to resonate differently. Absolutely. And and you know, as the old saying is, uh, all disasters you know start and end locally. Um, I think one of the things that we really have to even to the governors um or, or to the local uh, elected officials is you know they they believe that fema is the you know coming in on the white horse to save the day um you know type of thing and understanding what the role of fema is during a large disaster uh compared to what your local and state and county um, um assets truly truly are uh, I, I think that, again, FEMA's getting beat up in Hawaii. 
well, are they looking at the right place to, to, to beat them up? You know, is, 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 should it be, should we be looking at the local emergency management um, agency um, or, or public officials that are there? Uh, and, and I don't mean to be uh, pointing any fingers. Cause again, I, I, I don't have all the data in front of me. I'm just saying people tend to pick on FEMA quickly uh, compared to happen in New Orleans, right? Uh, yeah. FEMA, FEMA got, you know, bashed really hard, but no one looked at the fact of, you know, Ray Nagin's uh, ineptitude to making decisions that could have made a whole big difference on, on, um, uh, on the, on the response side of it. Right. And, and I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers necessarily because it's all there. That data is for sure there to, and, and the conversations that I've been having. So, I mean, I've, as a, as a college professor, I, I've, I've read so many papers on on Katrina that I think I'm 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 a, a an expert in it, uh, not due to my own research, but due to the research of all my students that I've read all, all their papers, you know. But no, I, I, but I'm saying it's just there, right? I mean, we've seen these, and and going back to politics in it, I mean, Dagan and Blanco, both of them were pointing fingers at each other, uh, and they're you know both from the same political party, you know, and then they started pointing fingers um, up at the at FEMA who was at the time was a, a Republican president uh, was in charge. That was George Bush. Um, a lot of finger pointing going on, on, on during, during that particular event. And we we're seeing that happening now in, in, in Hawaii. Right. Um, we're seeing a, a lot. Locals are upset with everybody. Uh, rightfully so. I mean, there's some, they're really slow on this uh, recovery, but are, I mean, from what I'm hearing in the media, but is that true? Is that like I'm going back? Is this perception reality, or you know, are they doing a good job? I, I, and again, I, I'm not, I can't throw any uh, disparaging words towards Hawaii because I don't know enough about what's going on. Um, there's, I don't have, there's not a lot of data there. That's going to be a disaster that people like Jeff and I um, are going to study for a long time to try to figure out what what went wrong and what went right uh, during that event. But what's your opinion on that, Jeff? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I agree. And, and that being said, I think this is also some of the difference between sort of the, the types of information that's needed. You know, let me back up. You know, I, I uh, um, did some work on, on in my MBA program on business intelligence systems, and we're looking at applying this into disaster management. So a lot of times what you have is you have a lot of data and you structure it and then you dashboard it out for different levels and different decision makers. And so we wrote a paper on a colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Joe Albanese and I wrote a paper on it, um, essentially talking about how that those themes could apply to disaster management. A lot of corporations are actually networked organizations. They don't have control over each subsidiary, but they do have influence. And, and that's, a, that's a pattern we see with disaster management, you know, things like that. But at the end of the day, it's the dashboarding that's really important. And what I mean by that is the kind of data that an emergency manager is looking for and the kind of things that you and I are looking for in terms of what is the problem with the systems to build? Well, that's gonna take time. It's gonna take time to collect the information. It's gonna be nuanced. It may be context specific. Um, and certainly, you know, there's always heroic work being done. There's always shortcomings. Um, and we know that. That's not the game that an elected official is in. They, right. and I wanna be careful. I don't wanna say that they just want everything cut and dry and everything simple because I've had very robust conversations behind the scenes with legislators, with elected officials, things like that, um, because they do wanna know, they do want well-informed policy, but they've got a, but if they've got a press conference at two o'clock, <laughs> they need answers to questions or at least satisfying answers to questions. And a satisfying answer can't be you know, we're going to collect data over the next three months and have a report out. It's going to be, look, but then again, it doesn't have to be definitive. I think the, the biggest paradox is where people oversimplify and that does that is no good for anyone. Um, when people say we're prepared, I'm like, well, first, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, we're doing everything we can. Um, but I remember actually uh, my predecessor as, as director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University, Dr. Erwin Redliner, He'd always talk to me about these things and he'd say, I need an answer. The mayor is going to say, what can I say at a press conference that is going to explain this? That is the soundbite is to explain this. Um, and it's something we're not comfortable with because of all of the uncertainty and nuance. Yeah. And I think this cuts a lot of different ways. That being said, the reason the politician wants the answer is because the voters want the answer. And it's because the people 
who have been affected by this disaster want an answer. Not a lot of sort of bureaucratic speak about processes and forms. Um, it's uh, Kevin James does a bit from years ago about when your airline ticket is being rebooked and they're looking there, oh, I'm going to try for a class C ticket on a blah, blah, blah. And it's like, whatever, like, just get me my ticket. <laughs> and and um, I've seen that firsthand too, where, where someone asks, I, I was recently in, a, uh, in an event and someone from the Rockaways asked a question, if something like Hurricane Sandy happened again, would I... Would, would I have the same experience or would I get back in my home faster? That is a very reasonable question for somebody to ask. Now, the folks on stage, and I was there with folks in the emergency management agency and, and couldn't answer that. Um, now, it's not their fault they couldn't answer it, right? And they were doing the best they could to provide the best answer that they could give. But the thing is, the policies don't all sit within the emergency management agency. To your point, they sit within housing, they sit within the office of recovery, they sit within all these sorts of different offices, and they have one slice of this pie, but not the whole picture. Um, and so these sorts of things are, I think, sort of what, what defy easy answers. Um, and me being an academic and not being tied to any agency, I was able to jump in and say, um, probably a little bit, but probably not a lot better. Right. <laughs> that a lot of work has been done to better understand and set up systems at the city level um, and, and across the agencies to help figure this out. But we're still dependent on as many as 90 programs across 20 different agencies. You don't know which ones are going to be activated. You don't know when they're going to be activated. You don't know what rules are going to be needed. So there's all this uncertainty around it. And so the most honest, concise answer that I could give, and again, I was in a position to give an answer like that because I'm not attached to um, an organization that, how, how should I put this? In, in academia, we can say whatever we want. Yeah. <laughs> I always say Galileo died for our sins, right? It's the whole, <laughs> like, we can, um, you know, the, the, the university can always say we don't support uh, or, or, or are against what our researchers say. Um, they have academic freedom and we support academic freedom. And it's a very unique environment where we can say whatever we want. Um, and and um, so, again, I'm not trying to take anything away. They were very uh, well-meaning, very knowledgeable, very hardworking folks on stage with me. I just wasn't tethered to an organization that that was going to. Um, the only thing that they care is that what I'm saying is informed and evidence-based. <laughs> the content right. the subject is. Um but that's the reality I think that we're in. And it's a very uncomfortable reality um, where the nuance of disaster is so complex. The questions that people have are so, there's a big gap between the information people want and the information we're able to provide. And sitting in the middle of that are elected officials. And so I sometimes talk disparagingly that you know elected officials are incentivized by this um, because they want to stay in power. But we built it that way. That's right. the the design is that to stay in power, you have to be responsive to the people that you represent, not to the agencies under your purview. Although to run effective teams, you want to have agencies that you understand and respect and have good leadership, which I know is the subject of a lot of your other <laughs> work as well, too, is in uh, and, and leadership and, and your other podcast. So I think, um, yeah, at the end of the day, that that's that's a very uncomfortable place that politics sits between um, and um, and it's a very wide gap between um, the complexity of the approach and um, the simplicity of the question that deserves an answer, but that doesn't necessarily have one. Well, there's, there's two things to that, Jeff. Is, is, is one is, you know, yes, the elected official is going to say or want to say good things. They, they never want to be the, 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 the bearer of bad news. Um, and, and, you know, I would tell my elected officials, let, I, I, I'm okay to be the bearer of bad news if, if you guys need to have somebody to, to do that. Right. Because that's my job, right. As the emergency manager, we can come out and, and say things that aren't necessarily comfortable for, for elected official to say, and it gives them cover for lack of a better term. Um, now the other side though, is some people, some elected officials run on the fact that they want to, you know, put the bureaucrat um, in check or, or, you know, 
we're going to come and we're going to, you know, chop the bureaucratic process on things. Um, and, and people are like, yay, you know, get rid of those crazy, you know, government workers that are, you know, doing things. Um, you know, they're getting too big check to, to do nothing because we do get caught up in the nuance of things. We are in a complex, very difficult questions that we're looking at sometimes. And the depends answer comes out quickly and oh, people hate that people hate that that answer they said well you know what is the answer to this they said well there's many you know many variables that goes to this so it depends and and they get that just drives them crazy they want to see us have the answers at hand um and and so i don't know i mean i've, I've been there for large fires you know when can we go back into our, our home well it depends what does it depend on? Well, you know, it depends on, you know, what are the, what's the weather patterns going on right now? You know, is it safe? Is it, what are the toxin levels in this area? You, you know, um, and I remember one lady during the Woolsey fire, I go back to that one. So one in Malibu, um, you know, she's in, at the town hall meeting and she's demanding, and then these are very wealthy people. I, and, and I want to put that in context because they're, they're sometimes wealthy people are used to getting what they, what they want. And, and she's demanding LA County uh, fire department, um, to put her in a helicopter to fly her over our house to see it. And they're like, no, we're not putting you in a helicopter to go see your, your house if it's okay or not. We'll send people up there to take a look at it. But, you know, and, and I get that they want to know if their house is burnt down or not. I understand that. We understand, we're very empathetic for that. But there's a lot of other factors that go into allowing you into a disaster zone more than just your desire to see your house. Um, and, and, and that's one of the issues that's happening right now in Hawaii is people are like, well, why aren't you letting us back over there? Well, it's still so much it's unsafe right now. You know, it's just a very unsafe spot right now. And so, yeah. um, you know, but people don't want to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know we've covered a lot of ground sort of in our conversation and sort of, um, you know, in this kind of relaunch of the podcast, uh, maybe uh, uh, we're, we're sort of getting regrounded around the politics and all the complexity and all the different themes. Um, so uh, I, I think going forward, you know, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of how we're going to approach this. Um, what are we going to do, Todd? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, disaster politics uh, to me, you know, as a again, as a policy guy. And at the end of the day, when with in my mind, at least when I think of politics, I think of policy. Right. And, and what can we do to what can we investigate and experience to make disaster policy better, um, whether it's uh, local or, or the national level? And I think, you know, focusing on the on the national level uh, for a little while here, uh, one of the things I'd like to really get into, Jeff, and you and I had a conversation offline before, is what do we need to do to make the Stafford Act better? Or do we just get rid of it and start all over again? Let me answer the question by answering another question. You know, okay. a lot of times there, there's a bit of a movement now on whether or not FEMA should be within the Department of Homeland Security or not. Um, and there's a lot of folks in emergency management who feel like that's not a good place. The Department of Homeland Security is primarily a law enforcement agency. You've got Secret Service, you've got Coast Guard, you've got Customs and Immigration, you've got all these sorts of different sort of traditional law enforcement agencies. And then you have FEMA, which is emergency management, which has some overlap, but is distinctly different. And that whether or not that that's the best fit. Um, we've seen a lot of those challenges in the early placement, but the post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act largely sort of granted a lot of the authority back to FEMA that had been stripped away. Um, and it's, it's functioned, I would say, reasonably well since then as the agency it was designed to be. Um, now, before letters start coming in with all the errors and issues and things, of course, I, I don't mean to dismiss, you know, anything like that. But in general, we haven't seen a Katrina style failure since right. then um, and a lot of the restoration. So, so I guess my question is that. So if we're really looking at some of the shortcomings and challenges we're facing in disasters, I think where we're getting to is that, again, 90 programs across 20 agencies, and we don't know which ones will be activated when, some literally require an act of Congress to put in place. But then we also, you know, see things like economic policy that sets the stage for disasters, equity issues that, that are, are put in place long before FEMA enters into the scene. 
Um, and we have restrictions in the authorizing legislation on what FEMA is and isn't and what the Stafford Act is and isn't. So coming back to your question, you know, when folks talk about, do we make FEMA an independent agency? I don't think that's big enough of a question. And so I think your question is starting to get there. Do we start, do, do we, we should entertain the idea of repealing the Stafford Act and replacing it. I'm not saying that that's the right answer, but I'm saying that's the grandeur of question that's needed. Um, should, uh, you know, do we need something, you know, uh, I know we had the Homeland Security Council that got folded into the National Security Council. Do we need a cross-agency um, role? The Homeland Security Advisor tends to focus more on, on terrorism issues and things like that. Um, so do we, again, do we need to sort of break away from that and think more about long-term resilience and what that means? So so at the end of the day, I, I think that we really have to ask ourselves, these structures that have evolved over the last, when was FEMA? 79. So what is that? 15 years, 40 years? Um, uh, is it still something where we're going to incrementally change these things or do we need something at the scope of post 9-11 and the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And I use that example intentionally because it's a structure that a decade later seems to have accomplished some of the goal, goals, but it was a mess getting mm -hmm. to where we are today, a profound mess. And I would argue that, that the response to Hurricane Katrina was in large part because it happened during the trauma of the agency reorganization. So it will yeah. be very traumatic. It is not a no-brainer and is not without cost. Is it worth it? And so these are the questions that I have, these larger questions that I think we really need to be asking ourselves is, is the structure the right structure or do we need to build something brand new to accomplish what we're looking to accomplish? Um, now, how does that translate into a bill being introduced into Congress? Um, should there be, I mean, look, I think there should be a commission and I know that's sort of a kind of a BS sort of easy answer, a blue ribbon com commission, but honestly, a really good one, um, like the work of the 9-11 commission, like the work of, of, of many commissions. Um, what was originally the blue ribbon study panel for biodefense, their initial report, now they're the bipartisan panel on biodefense, I think. Um, you know, these commissions are creating really robust and really well-researched and really well-founded recommendations. And the 9-11 commission had a lot of very, holistic sort of looks at how are we doing things that led to some very meaningful reforms. Um, and that's what, that's the depth of exploration that we need is to ask some tough questions. And maybe the answer is no. Should we repeal it? Maybe the answer is no. I perfectly accept that maybe the answer should be no, but I want to fight about it for a little yeah. while, collegially, <laughs> but, but I want to fight about it. Absolutely. You know, I, I think, you know, kind of going forward with what we're doing here at Disaster Politics 2.0 um, is, uh, is realistically, let's delve into these, these tough questions. Uh, and, you know, we're going to find some, some great guests to, to come on to, to even get deeper into the conversation. Uh, and it's going to be a place for everybody to uh, participate in these tougher questions and, you know, you know, break down the break down the wall and see how we can make a better organization, a better community, and a uh, in disaster response wise. And um, you know, how do we how do we go forward with good disaster policy? At least that's my goal, Jeff. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I think one thing that you and I always hold true is that we're 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 trying to be critical without being critical. Um, you know, we, we, we want to look at the policies and procedures uh, to really put the wind at the backs of the people who are out there doing the right thing, trying to do good work, um, and uh, just really make sure that that energy and enthusiasm. And the other thing I'll say, too, is, is working in the space of disaster science. We, when it comes to science, we are the babies. We're even younger than psychology, and psychology was the baby before us. So there's a lot of like rivalry in the household. No, I'm just kidding. But it's, it's, um, we don't like, like, the, you know, we need a good evidence base. And in some cases, there's a lot of evidence that we're not using. But in other cases, we don't have science for that. <laughs> like, we're working on it. But there are a lot of questions like, oh, do you have research that can tell us this? And I'm thinking, what's the most polite way to say no, that <laughs> could potentially get us a grant. <laughs> but the, 
um, that's our incentive structure. But the um, no, but uh, in all seriousness, um, yeah, this is an area where we do have some of the pixels colored in, and we have a lot of them that aren't. Which means that you know the recommendations we have today we're making off of information we didn't have 10 years ago right. and we're going to have more information 10 years from now um, that we don't have today uh so it, it's just sort of recognizing that this is an ongoing process and it's uh we'll, we'll try the best we can not to um you know uh be gratuitously critical for the sake of a talking point we might do it for a cheap laugh um <laughs> and a non sequitur but uh that's uh, <laughs> but uh no but uh, but in all seriousness yeah it, it but then we have to step back and say what are the conditions that have led to this and what can we do about those conditions um and i think that's the type of sustainable change and meaningful change that we're looking to see at scale absolutely well we'll see well, like we probably should wrap it up here pretty soon and um i'm looking forward to this new venture I'm looking forward to really diving deep into some uh, difficult questions. Um, as I say, I think a lot because I don't have the empirical data to back it up, uh, but I have the you know anecdotal evidence to, to back it up, I suppose. Um, so we'll get into a lot of thinking, um, and I think we'll get into a lot of, of ideas that we, you know, somebody out there working with us or, or through us, uh, you know, can grab some of my ideas and maybe make a difference um, in disaster policy. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I always, I always give the caveat whenever I speak that, you know, I, I may have no idea what I'm talking about. So um, <laughs> I appreciate uh, everyone listening. And it, at, at the end of the day, you know, right, it, it's, you know, we, we have a lot of experiences, we have access to data and research and things like that. And I have a venue for talking about this. And at the end of the day, people have to take this into the context of what they do. And, and for all the listeners, you're the experts in your domain. And, um, you know, some of this may be helpful, some of it may not be, and, and it's up to you to, to really make that call on what makes the most sense. Looking forward to continuing the conversation, bringing on some additional experts to do a deep dive into different angles, much as we have done on the podcast, um, and really get into some more specific issues. And more importantly, just being able to churn out more episodes. We, I really appreciate um, all of the feedback, all the questions on when's the next episode, and uh, I'm finally getting get, getting my stuff together. I shouldn't even say that. I'm leaning on a friend who's <laughs> also enthusiastic, and I very much appreciate Todd your your generosity and getting enthusiasm and getting engaged, so that we can we can keep these conversations going, and it's not dependent on any single person to keep this going. Absolutely. All right, Jeff. I'll see you next time. All right. Sounds great. <laughs>